following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, kia ora, Shaw community. It's good to be back. So, uh, as Michael said before, my name's Jonathan. I am the senior pastor at Grace City Church, formerly known as Green Lane Christian Center uh, on the motorway uh, around uh, Green Lane area. Uh, and so your pastor, Reuben, is over at Summit out East Auckland today. Uh, Summit has sent Brad to my church at Grace City, and I'm here. And uh, it's not just in the fun kids' environments that we can actually enjoy ourselves, uh, but here, right here, that we uh, can go through some of these amazing moments uh, right here in this Mosaic series. I mean, think about some of the amazing moments that we've experienced already in this story. Uh, there was Joseph's rise to power, going from, going from slavery uh, going from serving a prison sentence to serving as prime minister. Uh, God had his hand in this moment to bring Joseph to be the ultimate crisis leader, uh, leading through the seven years of, of famine. It's one of the amazing moments in the story. And then think about some of the other amazing moments. We've witnessed uh, Judah's uh, transformation uh, as he stands, uh, takes a step forward to say, I will stand in the place of Benjamin. Um, who would have thought the slug of Judah could be uh, utterly transformed uh, to be a leader among his brothers? We talk about the spiritual metamorphosis at work. It's one of those, an, another amazing moment in this, in this story. And then last week, we witnessed the forgiveness of this dysfunctional family. Uh, the way uh, forgiveness is offered by Joseph towards his brothers who have hurt him incredibly deeply. It's again, it's one of these amazing moments in the story. Uh, these are the moments you, you, you take as like photos that you place into this, this mosaic uh, series photo album that we are starting to assemble. These high points. But I want to suggest to you today that today's reading, Genesis 46 and 47, is actually the pinnacle of the story of Joseph. If you glance at the chapters, if you have your Bibles open, uh, print Bibles or, or digital Bibles, you'll, you'll kind of see it there, and it might kind of surprise you. Because if you look there at chapter 46, it's just a bunch of names. It's this whakapapa, this, this genealogy. You kind of skip over it. And then you see the journey that Jacob takes to Egypt, and, and, and you have a look at what Joseph does to, to lead the people through, through the famine. And it just seems to be like filler. But between the high point over here and maybe a high point to come, it's like the, the fuller episode between the really good episodes of a series. But actually, when we read the story with this bigger picture of Genesis in mind, we, we begin to see there is a whole lot more going on here behind the first glance. Uh, if you uh, read it in the context of the bigger story of Genesis, you, you, you might remember the, the promise that God gave to Abraham and, and the Fokapapa that was going to come from Abraham to bring a blessing to the world. Remember how God said this back in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, you're going to be a blessing. Uh, you're, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all those who come from you. 
And here in our story today, there are echoes of this promise that they're going to be a, a nation and that they're going to be a people who are going to bring blessing to other people. And with that lens in mind, uh, let's hear the scripture reading for us today here in chapter 46 and chapter 47. So Israel set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob, and their children and their wives, and the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, because I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who are living in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds and tend their livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, What is your occupation? You should answer. Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. And then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him to Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. And then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. So it doesn't sound like the pinnacle of the story, does it? But maybe you're starting to hear some of the echoes from that blessing that God gave to Abraham. Remember even just the last words that were read to us? They were fruitful and increased in number. And doesn't that echo the promise that God gave to Abraham that they're going to become a great nation? Uh, Not to mention the the, the instructions he gave to Adam and Eve to to be fruitful and increase the number. And humanly speaking, the the people of God, I mean, they should be impoverished in Egypt. And you're right here during a famine, God God is causing them to flourish and to prosper. He is blessing his people. And then there's other echoes in our story. 
Uh, if you have your Bibles open and you look at the middle of chapter 46, you'll notice that there's a Fokapup or a genealogy. We didn't read it because it's just a bunch of names. It's one of those sections that's kind of really easy to skip through. But it's there for a reason. Uh, the writer is trying to make a point that this family is growing. And if you look uh, earlier back in Genesis, back in chapter 10, there was another genealogy of 70 names that was meant to be uh, the list of names from whom all the nations of the earth come from. And how many people do we have here in chapter 46? Uh, also 70. It's this microcosm of the representative 70 nations that are going to be blessed through this family. You see, God chose Abraham and his family to bless the nations. And, and when we go back to the beginning of the series, you go, there's no way that Judah and, and his sons, uh, Jacob and his sons, are going to be able to bless the, the earth. I mean, they, they don't look like they could bless anybody. They're a dysfunctional family. I mean, th again, think about some of the traits, the, the favoritism, envy, deceit. These are, these are well-practiced family traits, aren't they? But as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, God has been at work transforming these people into a, into a nation, into a, into a family through whom others are now going to be blessed. And here in today's story, we reach the pinnacle point, when, when uh, read in the context of Genesis, when Jacob and Joseph step forward, step onto the stage, and actually bless other people, just like God promised they would do way back in chapter 12 to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. So, so look at the blessing Jacob brings. Uh, do you notice here the scene in the story when, when Jacob has moved to Egypt and he, he goes in to see Pharaoh, and what does he do? Uh, right at the beginning of that conversation and the end of that conversation, he blesses Pharaoh. This is what we read. Uh, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Uh, at the end of the conversation, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And at a human level, you kind of go, oh, but isn't Pharaoh the superior one here? Uh, shouldn't it be that, that Pharaoh is the one stepping forward to bring the blessing? I mean, Jacob, I mean, he's just a retired farmer, retired shepherd. And you're right here. It's like Jacob, it's like Jacob realizes his God-given role is to bless others. It's like suddenly it has dawned on him this divine blessing given to his granddaddy way back that they were meant to be a nation bringing blessing to other people. And so he steps onto the stage and he blesses Pharaoh. And isn't this what Joseph is doing right here in the story? Uh, through the seven-year crisis, that this famine that's there, uh, Joseph has stepped forward and he's now blessing Pharaoh and he's blessing the people of Egypt who are being saved through Joseph's crisis leadership. Uh, God uh, revealed to him that there was going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And so he's had the wisdom to uh, store up uh, during those seven years of prosperity to prepare to lead the people now through the seven years of famine. And through all of this, Joseph is... It's having this innate awareness that God has gifted him, revealed these things to him, placed him right where he is in order to bless other people through this time. In fact, you might have picked up this last week when, when Joseph, uh, with this innate awareness, he says, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Uh, God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant on earth. And so Joseph steps in to bless others. And so they respond, Joseph, you have saved our lives. Uh, you've saved our lives. You have blessed us. And so what we want us to notice today is, is how Jacob and how Joseph are blessing others and where they are when they bless others. And it might seem really obvious to you, 
But I think this is one of those things we need to unpack a bit because it has some huge implications for us. So notice, first of all, that Joseph and Jacob are not in the promised land, that they're not in the sacred place, that they're not in the land full of promise. And yet despite this, God is using them to, to bless others away from their sacred place. I think that's really significant because at the time in ancient Near Eastern world, when people thought about the gods, they thought about them being kind of geographically tied to a particular area. Uh, Murdoch was the god of Babylon, Abel, the god of Canaan, uh, Amon-Ra, the, the god of Egypt. Uh, they each had this geographical focus, but the god of Jacob, the god of the Bible, is not restricted to some real estate somewhere. And in fact, our, our story in this series has always reminded us, hasn't it, that, that the Lord was with Joseph even though he's in Egypt. And so when Jacob sets out, even here in the story, right at the beginning of chapter 46, God steps in to remind Jacob, I'm going to go with you even in Egypt, outside of the promised land, and, and the Abrahamic blessing is still going to be fulfilled. Not only are they not in the sacred place of the promised land, but, but Jacob and Joseph are not in a, I guess what you would call a, a spiritual or a sacred role. I mean, Jacob and his sons, they're, they're shepherds, they're farmers, uh, Joseph is a, is a civic leader. Uh, they're not pastors, they're not priests, they're, they're not prophets. And yet God is blessing them and God is enabling them to bring a blessing to others in very ordinary ways. You see, why am I wanting to draw attention to this? Well, I think a whole bunch of us, we have this tendency, don't we, to separate our, our faith from our, our daily lives. And we have this, like, like this invisible line drawn between faith and work. So, so over here I have my, my church life, over here I have my, my home life and my work life, and we, and we draw this invisible line between, between the two. And we might even use words like, like sacred or spiritual to describe what happens in, in this part of our life and, and secular to describe what happens over here. And this idea starts to seep into our lives. Perhaps, perhaps God is actually primarily interested in what happens over here in the spiritual world, church world, and, and actually not so much over here in this other place. And that God is primarily interested and, and involved doing something over here, but actually not so much over here. So I want you to notice where and how Joseph and Jacob a blessing Pharaoh in Egypt. Though Joseph and Jacob don't have sacred roles of pastor, priest, prophet, and though they're not on the promised land, God is using them right where they are to bring blessing to other people. You see, this story yells out to us. God uses ordinary believers to be a blessing in the way they live, work, and play. In other words, everyday lives and everyday people can actually be part of a story, a bigger story, that God is outworking in this world. So let me give you a couple of numbers to chew over. The first here is 2,500. It's the amount of hours that you will likely log attending services here at Shore Community between the ages of 25 and 65. And that sounds a lot, but here's another number, 77,000. 
It's the number of hours you will likely be in paid employment during that same period of time. And that's just assuming that you're working 40 hours a week and you have four weeks off each year. Maybe a whole lot of you will work many more hours than that. And as you can see, there's a big difference, isn't there, between those two numbers. And it's not surprising because we spend most of our week in a paid employment role. And yet it's funny, isn't it, how we can have this, this idea that God is most interested in what happens in the 2,500 hours than the 77,000 hours of whatever we're doing in those other spaces. But you see, God doesn't draw a line between the faith world and the secular world, as we might call it, but between the sacred space and the, the work or home space. Brother, God actually gives us our work, our talent, and our skills so that we might serve him and that we might bless others right where God has placed us. He wants to be involved in every area of our lives to bring blessing to others, to, to, to further his work of redemption and renewal in our world. Now, I'm not blaming any of you if you have this invisible line. I actually blame pastors like me because I think we can so easily give you the impression that God is most interested in this hour in a week and the real full-time workers are, well, pastors like me. And we, we kind of start to restrict people to think about full-time workers as only pastors, as only people who are paid by the church to get on with the really important things that happen uh, in a week. In fact, uh, Kiwi writer Alistair McKenzie wrote a really helpful book on this. He says, where's God on Monday? And he speaks about five common ideas that came through in a survey around this topic that he did on New Zealand churches uh, a while back. And this is his conclusion. He says, first of all, most people could not remember ever hearing a sermon on work. So even though it's about you know, 40% of what happens in our waking hours, it's like we pastors are oblivious or dismissive to what happens most of the week for you. Uh, secondly, he says, almost no one could identify any church songs that referred to work. <laughs> and yet if worship is actually part of what we can do in our work, that work could actually be worship, uh, shouldn't it actually be something that we even sing about as part of our worship? Uh, most could, he says, um, not remember any prayers being prayed specifically about work. So we huddle and we might pray about a service or we pray about what happens here each week, but isn't God also involved and interested in those other 77,000 hours that are going to happen during our lifetime? He says most were resigned to the fact that church was not likely to address their work realities. No one expected it anymore. And then he says most assumed even the topic of faith at work was about financial giving and evangelism. Their idea in their minds is when a pastor would talk about faith at work, where he or she was about to go was saying, hey, um, you need to evangelize your workmates or uh, work hard in order to give more to church. Now, both of these practices are obviously great things to do. But, but all of this says to me that we have a major, major problem in our understanding. See, see, many followers of Jesus, it's like we leave faith at church on a Sunday and we become practical atheists in the workplace. And, and we have no vision for what it means to partner with God in our everyday lives, in our everyday work, to accomplish God's kingdom purposes in and through our lives, right where we are in the workplace. 
You see, if the workplace is where we spend 77,000 hours compared to the 2,500 hours over those 40 years alone, I think we need to grasp the idea that God can actually use us right where we work, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, to actually bring blessing to other people's lives. Now, as an aside, uh, when I mention work, when the Bible talks about work, uh, it's not just talking about paid employment. Really, when the Bible talks about work, it, uh, it's talking about expending energy in the service of others, which obviously would include a student studying here at school or uni. Uh, it would include a, a stay-at-home parent, the, the person volunteering their time at whatever age of, or stage of their, their life. See, all this work, God is wanting to partner with you to bless others right where you are. So the story of Joseph, again, kind of digging into this, is reminding us, isn't it, that God is not just at work in the place of promise. He's not just working through pastors. Rather, God is using ordinary people to be a blessing in the way they live, work, and play. So here's the question. I mean, what if God has placed you right where you are throughout the working week in order to serve His purposes, in order to actually be a blessing to other people? Uh, what if you work in retail or as a courier driver or in business or education, whatever it is you do, could actually be with this understanding God has placed you where you are and He's gifted you particular skills and He actually wants to bring renewal to this world through you, partnering with what you're doing to renew all things. I mean, that would, that would reimagine, wouldn't it, the way we spend our nine-to-five existence. I, I believe a key passage, actually, for our time and place is Jeremiah 29. It's written at a time when God's people are in exile. It's around 600 BC, and, and Babylon uh, conquered Jerusalem, and they took the people of God from Jerusalem all the way back to Babylon. And the people are no longer in power. They're, they're no longer the majority. They're no longer calling the shots. They're, they're over here in a new society that is now opposed to God and the things of God. In a very similar way, they're just like the people here in the story of Joseph. They're no longer in the promised land. They're the minority voice in a culture that's opposed to God and the ways of God. It's a very similar situation to what we're in right now in New Zealand, isn't it? And the people back then were wondering how to go about life in this new world. Now, what was, their, what was their role now that they weren't in the place of promise and they weren't the majority voice? And in steps the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to what he says to the people then and I believe now. He says, the God of Israel says, build homes, plan to stay, Plant gardens, eat the food they produce, marry and have children. In other words, get on with your life. Settle into the neighborhood. Put down roots. Get to know your neighbors. I know you left a time or a place that where you were the majority, where you made the decisions, where faith was the, the, the main view, and now you're actually into this place where everybody seems to be against God and, and they don't share the same beliefs and values that you do. And then he says, uh, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Now that, that phrase there, the peace and prosperity, actually comes from one Hebrew word, the word shalom. Perhaps you've heard this word before. 
And shalom means it has this um, wide uh, lexical range, meaning complete flourishing in all directions. You can think about it as, as social flourishing, that everybody has a place where they belong. You can think about it as economic flourishing, where, where no one lives below the poverty line. You can think about a spiritual flourishing where everybody has the opportunity to respond to the, to the beauty of the gospel and to step into a personal relationship with God. And Jeremiah says to the people, this is your calling. And you pray for this and you work hard for this. You, you bring shalom, you bring his blessing to other people. And this is the thing throughout scripture. That God calls ordinary believers to live ordinary lives that bring his shalom, that bring his blessing through the way we live, the way we work, and the way we play. That again, our everyday lives are part of a bigger story that's going on in this world. See, remember, he plays Joseph in a civic leadership role, crisis leadership role, to achieve blessing to work for the saving of many lives. Uh, he plays Daniel and his mates in Babylon, where they served as high-level public servants. He placed Esther as queen in Persia, where she used her position to, to save a whole nation from genocide. He placed Nehemiah in Persia to prepare for a difficult and demanding building project in Jerusalem. And these people aren't pastors, they're not priests, but they are used right where God placed them in what we would deem secular roles. And they had pressures of construction deadlines. They had political issues to navigate. They had a range of things they needed to communicate. Lots of things on their to-do lists. Very similar to the things that you're doing right now. Men and women in environments that were against the people of God. I think many of you can kind of resonate. This is your nine to five or many other hours outside of that. This is what you face week by week. But their work and our world... God actually is doing something through these things to renew all things. And everything we do, or everything we can do, can actually reverse the effects of the fall and participate in God's transforming work. It suddenly reimagines what we do in our workplace, doesn't it? See, I hear people in wider culture will say something and get to Friday afternoon and they go, oh, thank God, it's Friday, right? Have you heard this before? You know, the working week's over, the weekend's finally here. Well, I think people at Shaw Community, and I think Christian churches all over our city should be ones that wake up tomorrow morning and say, thank God it's Monday. Man, I get to bless others through what I do in my job this week. This is the Christian narrative we step into. You see, Joseph was serving the Lord full time as a civic leader, not as a pastor, not as a church worker. Exactly what you're able to do through your work. What you do matters. The Bible upholds all work as having meaning and purpose. So just out of interest today, how many full-time Christian workers do we have here in the room? See, some of you understand what I'm saying. But really, if you all understood, all of our hands should be up, isn't it? All of us are Christian workers working for Jesus full-time. And whatever we're doing, but again, we've got this narrative that says there is this invisible line between the spiritual work that happens when you're paid to uh, serve in a Christian church or organization versus what we do the rest of the time. All of our hands should have been up. 
See, I love the way the Apostle Paul sums up what we do in our everyday life. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. And he's talking to people about labor, about what they're doing during the week. Uh, you're working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. That one New Testament scholar, Tom Wright, comments on this verse and says, you know, the task, talking about work, it may appear unimportant or trivial, but the person doing it is never that. And he or she has the opportunity to turn the job into an act of what? That of worship. Normal, everyday, even trivial tasks can be an act of worship. I mean, doesn't that transform the way you think about your job? It should. So where do these spoons fit in? You might want to grab this in front of you for a tick. You see, my family loves ice cream. <laughs> I know everybody would say that about themselves or their families, but my family must be in the top percentile of all ice cream lovers globally. Uh, and when we go to an ice cream parlor, the, the six of us, we, you know, have four children and my wife and myself, we, uh, we, we stand uh, in line and uh, we're one of those people you never want to be behind. Because we'll ask the person behind the counter, hey, can, can we have some taster sticks? And they reluctantly give us the taster sticks. And then we go, we're all kind of choosing what flavors we want to try. And, and we'll get that flavor on, you know, the little taster stick. And, and you'll hear the, the, this chorus of mmm, you know, coming through as we're trying ice creams. We'll even swap that little taster stick for the, with each other to try the various ice creams. You see, when you get a taster of ice cream, you're getting a taste. that This isn't the ice cream you're about to buy, is it? This is a taster of something bigger to come. Are you with me? See, when we allow the Spirit of God to bless us through our ordinary lives, through the way we live, work, and play, it's like you're providing ice cream tasters to the people you work with, to people in society. It's like you're giving them a taste of something bigger to come. You're pointing to what God is doing in this world. You're pointing to a bigger story about who God is than perhaps they've seen before. You're actually giving them a taste of where they can go, oh, mm, I'm starting to understand what God is wanting to do in the world. I'm starting to understand who God is. You're giving them a taste of the kingdom of God. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to take that spoon and pen that you had. If there's uh, not one right on you, grab one around you. There should be some, or, or put your hand up and somebody will bring a, a pen or a spoon to you if you missed out. But if you can take that, and on one side, if you can write down whatever you do in your job. Might be engineer, teacher, parent, student, volunteer, retailer. Even if you're retired, you're doing something. So write it down there. And then I'll consider the way God is wanting to use you right there in that job that you've written down to give people a taster of the kingdom of God, to give people a taster of who God is, right in categories of work that they see God doing and God placing us in to model what he's doing in this world. So think about your own job, and it might fall into one or perhaps even more of these categories. And you might even want to jot down the category next to your role. So here's some of the categories. You've got creative work, uh, God fashioning the world and revealing himself through the world. So if you're a musician or a writer or a graphic designer or into interior fashion or fashion design or carpentry or urban planning or architecture, you are doing creative work. You're, you're fashioning the world, revealing God's glory through what you do. Think about providential work. 
God sustaining life and provision for, for all of life. It includes sustaining, conserving, and, and replenishing. So if you work in retail or career counseling or farming or firefighting or printing or repairs or maintenance, IT, or as a broker or research or trades or transport or whatever it is you do, it's providential work. You, you, you're doing what God does in order to make sure we have what we need in order to function in life. And then you've got justice work. God bringing justice, what's, what's right to this earth. So if you're a cop or a judge or a lawyer or a legal secretary or a, or a policy researcher or into creation care or social justice work, you are participating in God's work of maintaining justice. Or think about the next category, revelatory work. God showing truth to people. You might be a teacher, a scientist, a, a scholar, a preacher, a filmmaker, a journalist. You, you're involved in this sort of work. Or the next category, compassionate work the way God comforts and brings care and shepherding to people. You might be a social worker, doctor, nurse, counselor, pharmacist, community worker, a not-for-profit director, uh, caring for the disabled or aging. You reflect this part of what God is doing in the world. Community work, the way God brings people together. It might be real estate agents bringing buyers, sellers together. It might be civil leaders. It might be anyone involved in the hospitality industry. We all need coffee, right? Our redemptive work, how God saves and reconciles people. So you might be a pastor, evangelist, or peacemaker. You might be an artist or a producer who threads these themes into your stories through what you produce. You're doing what God does in his redemptive work. And of course, many of our jobs might have more than one of those categories, but you might want to jot down one of those categories. Because what you're doing when you work is you're giving people a taste of your pointing. This is what God does in the world too. Uh, this is who God is. This is a taste of the kingdom of God to come. So through your, work, through your work, you are giving people a taste of God and the kingdom of God. And God has a lot of kingdom ice cream to dispense. And people get to taste that through the way we live, work, and play. So on one side of the spoon, you should have what you do. On the other side of the spoon, I'm wondering if you could write down this first reference here. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. And then I'm encouraging you to keep this in front of you in your job. You might grab some blue tack and put it on the dashboard of your car or truck. It might be the, the, the you know, desk where you work or the cubicle. It might be the coffee machine at home. It might be the till of the shop. All this is a reminder to you that God has placed you where you are and you're doing something for him to actually give people a taster of the kingdom of God, blessing people. And by the way, that reference, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, is this verse here, to work for the peace and prosperity of the city. So let me ask you again that question I asked earlier, and this time I want us to get it all right. In fact, let me ask you to just put your hand up already now <laughs> before I get to the question. All of us, hands up. Come on, come on. So how many full-time Christian workers do we have in the room today? Thank you. Thank you. This is who we are. This is who God has called us to be. And so God says, you know, how can I fulfill my mission at that school in Albany? And he says, I know, I'm going I'm to place a full-time Christian worker from Shaw Community, and I'm going to place her into that school. And so he takes that teacher, and, and she teaches well, and she brings a different culture to the way she does things. She, she gives people a taste of who God is and the way God wants to bring truth to people. 
She gives people a taste of a different culture and the way people can relate to people differently. Uh, God says, how am I going to reach builders? And so God sees a full-time Christian worker right there at Shaw Community and he, and he places him with a, a lot of muscles and a lot of tattoos and he goes out on that building site. You see, that person's not really going to listen to me. I have too few muscles and even fewer tattoos. But he might listen to that Christian builder. And that Christian builder is giving people a taste of who God is and the way God is building in this world, the way God is providing for all aspects of life. Uh, God says, I'm going to make this, I'm going to take this full-time uh, Christian worker and I'm going to, going to turn her into a mum. And so God gives her arms like an octopus to carry like eight things at once. And the magical spit that seems to be able to fix everything in the world. And she's there interacting with parents and she's, she's there with that magical spit that cleans and fixes everything. And what she's doing is partnering with, with what God is doing in this world to raise the next generation. So your kingdom calling takes you into schools and hospitals and businesses and art studios and homeless shelters and, and conference gatherings and building sites and retail and rest homes and trucks and trains and mums groups and bowling greens. Uh, through your work, you are giving people a taste of the kingdom of God. So tomorrow morning when you wake up, I want the first words that you declare outside of your mouth to say, thank God it's Monday. And as you put your feet on the ground, you pray, God, would you help me to give others a taste of who you are today through the way I work and the way I go about my work in everyday life? Help me to point others to you. Help me to bless others, to provide healing, and to serve you diligently right through what I do. So imagine, would you? Imagine a couple of thousand Christians just from a Mosaic collective waking up tomorrow morning and blessing the city through our ordinary jobs. Imagine marketplace leaders committed to ethical practices and, and influencing the economic systems of our day. Imagine entrepreneurials, uh, entrepreneurs using their, their skills to solve our city's biggest problems. Imagine creatives gifted, uh, allowing these gifts to be awakened, to bring honest reflection and hope to our city. Imagine the advocacy that can happen for the vulnerable. Imagine workplace cultures having a respect for all persons, a culture that goes the extra mile for each other. Imagine even in the future, the, the fashion and finance and culture of our city shaped by a younger generation with a passion for Jesus. Imagine a church that doesn't make Sunday services the exclamation mark of its existence, but instead of a comma in this ongoing sentence of this ongoing story that God is writing. Imagine, would you? Shaw Community Church, working for the peace and prosperity, the shalom, of Tamaki Makoto. After all, God uses ordinary believers to be a blessing right where we live, work, and play. Let's pray together. Our oh, Father, thank you for the way you have gifted people right here at Shore Community. Thank you for the way you've placed them where they work, where they live. And thank you that through these things, you're wanting to do your work of making all things new, seeking to bless the environment around them. 
And so would you take them in the ordinary lives they have, ordinary jobs, as ordinary people, and would you do something extraordinary to bless other people? Thank you for this amazing plan that you have. And thank you that all of us are part of this bigger story. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.